Heidi, how are you sleeping? <laughs> I'm not sleeping so well. My, yeah. my twins are going through one of those sleep regressions. So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons not to be sleeping well right now, but, uh, but that is, yeah. that is yeah. mine. It's really crazy. <laughs> I'm Abigail Disney. Welcome to All Ears, my podcast where I get to go deep with some super smart people. This season, I'm talking to good troublemakers, artists, activists, politicians, and others who aren't afraid to shake up the status quo. We'll talk about their work, how they came to do what they do, and why it's so important in hard times to think big. You can't think about solutions without being a little optimistic. And man, oh man, I think we need some optimism right now. Well, we've been through some pretty challenging political times of late, and it has a lot of us thinking about and talking about the Constitution. This week, most of us, well, more than 50% of us actually, sighed a welcome sigh of relief as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris swore their oath of office. Locked down, but peaceful. The chaos of the last four years has left many of us feeling battered and in need of a reckoning with our founding principles. Is the Constitution really enough to protect this country in troubling times? And is it really capable of protecting all Americans? Well, my guest today has thought long and hard about this very thing. Uh, when I was 15 years old, I would travel the country giving speeches about the United States Constitution for prize money. This, uh, this was a scheme invented by my mom, a debate coach, to help me pay for college. I would travel to big cities like Denver, Fresno. I, uh, I would... Heidi Schreck is an award-winning playwright and actress who has written and performed a sensational, gut-wrenching, thought-provoking, and very funny play called What the Constitution Means to Me. And I, uh, I thought it would be interesting to go back and see what my 15-year-old self loved so much about this document, because I loved it. I was a zealot. It had a smash hit run, first off and then on Broadway, and picked up two Tony Award nominations. Heidi weaves the wrenching story of the four previous generations of women in her family terrorized by domestic and sexual violence in their own homes. Searching for answers about how exactly the Constitution has both succeeded and failed to protect her and her ancestors' most fundamental rights. Because the truth is, nobody understands the Ninth Amendment. Nobody, except me at 15. I was gobsmacked by what the Constitution means to me. I'd spent my life fighting for women's rights, but honestly, it never occurred to me that the Constitution might be the problem. In spite of its greatness, in spite of all the reverence it deservedly invokes, the Constitution was written to protect the rights of white, landowning men in the 18th century. And while we've been patching it up ever since, there are some rather critical omissions with real-world consequences. The show is available on Amazon Prime right now, and I strongly recommend you go and watch it. It's riveting. And on top of being an accomplished playwright and actress, Heidi is also a pandemic mommy, having given birth to twin girls just last year. So in this moment of high-stakes turmoil, I can't think of anybody I'd rather be sitting down with than you, Heidi Shrek. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Abby. You know, I just love this play so much. I'm so curious how on earth you ever pitched it 
to producers. <laughs> well, I luckily I didn't have to pitch it to producers. I had this this great company, True Love Productions, offered me a commission and said, we want to give you a commission to write just the thing you think you can't get done at any theater, basically, or, or the thing wow. you're really passionate about that you, you're not sure anyone will ever do. And That's so amazing. I, it was quite a luxury, I have to say. So I thought, well, I have this strange constitution piece that I've been kicking around for a few years. I don't know what it is. I know I want it to be about this contest I did when I was 15. So the contest is the American Legion Oratory Contest. So I said, I'll take this opportunity to make something that, that I don't I don't know what theater would would want to do it or or even what it is, like what form it ought to take. You know, at first I thought I'll, I'll actually write about being in high school. I'll, I'll write a f- sort of conventional play that that stars a teenage girl and is about her doing this contest and maybe it will be about her family life. And it seemed like a very rich setting. I was a teenager in the 1980s. It was a very specific kind of uh, time politically. And I was, you know, I was a very patriotic young American girl traveling around talking about how beautiful the Constitution is, what a work of genius. And so that seemed promising to me. And I started to write it like a normal play and then very quickly realized I wasn't interested in that. And then um, at some point thought, well, what if I played myself as a 15-year-old now that I, I was in my 30s at the time? I thought that might be interesting. And then kind of very slowly it developed into this idea where I was a 30-year-old woman looking back at my 15-year-old self and kind of doing this little act of magic where I put myself back in the shoes of my teenage self and did the contest again. And so it became this play in which the 15-year-old, and by the time I performed, I was in my 40s, and the 40-something-year-old exist at the same time and are grappling with their feelings about being an American and this document and really investigating how this the Constitution shaped their lives. And I really was struck by the prompt of the contest, which, you know, had to do with like really trying to make it personal. Like, can you go in and talk about how the Constitution has personally affected your life, which I I couldn't do at 15. And, and it seems to me a very fertile territory as an adult to say like, well, what does that even mean? Has it affected me personally? <laughs> and what does that look like? And once I started to do that, it, the play sort of just opened itself up to me. And I, I realized I was going to be kind of delving into to a family history that is complicated and also into the lives of, of all the women in my family. Yeah. Our, our second wave feminist friends used to say the personal is political, but the political is really, really personal, too. Yes. And that's what I love about this play for all the constitutional analysis, which is very sophisticated. It's also intimate and human. And, and you know, you wouldn't have been able to say it then, but the Constitution at like the end of the play, I feel like, is affecting your life, affecting my life by omission. Yes. Yeah. So you started this play during the Obama administration? And I then did. opened up during the Kavanaugh hearings off-Broadway. How, how did the outside world affect your thinking about this play, and did it influence the shaping of it along the way? Strangely enough, it uh, it didn't influence the shaping of it as much as you might think. I mean, and I think that's sort of what's proved to be 
fascinating about the play for me is that I wrote almost the entirety of my monologue. The play is sort of in two parts. There's there's my monologue as the 15-year-old girl sort of growing up and into an adult woman. And then in the second part of the play, I bring in an actual teenager to debate. Is that a sound of a human baby? That's my, ba- one of my babies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. It's hard to find a place that yeah, entirely quiet. <laughs> Babies welcome. Babies always she's, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, she'll be okay. I think she's probably just getting changed. Um, so I, I bring out a real teenage girl and debate her about you know whether to keep or abolish this constitution. And that part came later, but but everything that's written about my story and my family and about the Fourteenth Amendment as it relates to women that. I wrote all during the Obama administration and then did not expect right. to be performing it in such a volatile, extreme right. time. Yeah. You know, you make a little joke early on about how I've been thinking about the Constitution a lot lately, and everybody sort of, there's a little chuckle in the audience. A few years ago, I was thinking about the Constitution for various reasons. <laughs> and I know that every single performance, they're probably thinking of something different. Exactly. When you make that joke. That's exactly yes. right. Yes. There, there's what? really that joke is evergreen. It, there's always yeah. some reason to be thinking about the Constitution. <laughs> so the outside world affected your audience in a lot of ways. It did. Um, it affected and, my uh, audience. And way. I think it affected my performance more than it did the, the actual text. You know, I, I brought a different right. kind of energy in every night, depending on what was going on. And the, the few performances I did during the Obama administration, I think, it, the play more had a feeling of like, I know it seems like everything is is going sort of okay, but I, I've resurrected my teenage self and I'm discovering these like glaring problems <laughs> with the document as it relates to the history of my life and to yours. And then of course, by the time I was performing it during the Trump administration, it seemed like we're all looking at these, yeah. these problems together, you know? Um, so yeah, that was very interesting. The way it became much more of a communal experience, I think. I mean, I think I think um, being a fifteen year old and thinking everything is okay, and and then and then becoming a woman in her forties who's seeing that it's not, is is more of an awakening. It's not like things got hard. It's just that when we're young, I think we're willing to accept a lot of things. Yes, that aren't okay. You introduced this idea of negative rights and positive rights. Amendment 9 says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Do you know what that means? It means just because a certain right is not listed in the Constitution, it doesn't mean you don't have that right. The fact is, there was no way for the framers to put down every single right we have. I mean, the, the, the right to brush your teeth. Yes, you've got it. But how long do we want this document to be? I did learn a great deal about positive rights while making the play. So, you know, it, to put it succinctly, a negative right, which is what our Constitution is sort of shaped around, is is the things you you have a right to be free from. So you have a right to be free from tyranny, right? The government is not supposed to intrude upon your life. They're not supposed to seize your property or interfere with your life or kill you, for example. This document is supposed to protect you from that. A positive right is a right that sort of guarantees you something, which our constitution is really not 
I think the only thing you're guaranteed maybe is a right to trial by jury. But most other countries, and most other countries have constitutions that were written in the 20th century or later, most other countries have positive rights. So they include, like, in some of them, a guaranteed right to, say, education or healthcare, the right to gender equality. Mm-hmm. Now, how that gets enforced, of, yes, course, of course, is a whole other yeah. issue. You know, there, yeah. there are positive guarantees for racial equality. In reality, that's not always done, but the document says it's the obligation of the government to do that. So that was fascinating to me. I didn't realize, first of all, I hadn't read other countries' constitutions. I didn't realize how much they sort of like offered to their citizens that our constitution doesn't. Now, of course, ours is the oldest living constitution, which is one of the reasons it it doesn't offer some of these protections. A little under the pressure, yeah. A yeah. little, uh, it's maybe cracking under the pressure. And, you know, look, there are plenty of people who argue that that ours actually is better because it, it in its simplicity, right, it, it protects us from certain government infringements and then allows us essentially to govern ourselves. There's many smarter people than I am can argue all of this. But I just found, especially when it came to the idea of discrimination on the basis of sex, <laughs> that it, it was just fascinating that that we could never get the Equal Rights Amendment passed and the fact that our the 14th Amendment doesn't, in fact, adequately prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. And then I really started to think about the ways that positive rights might be really helpful in our document. Yeah. Well, and you talk about Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. And t- can you tell me about that case? Because that's that feels like the place where the notion that that the Constitution guarantees that nobody should ever be guaranteed anything kind of gets introduced. Right. Which is, it but, does feel like that. Yes, yes it does. So, tell us about that case. First of all, it's a heartbreaking case. I didn't know about it until I started researching the play. So one of the things I realized is, you know, if I wanted to talk about how the Constitution is personally affected my life, that I should look at Supreme Court cases that had to do with, for example, birth control, abortion, because I had an abortion when I was younger. And then I have a history, a long history of domestic violence in my family, which has, you know, very much shaped my mom's life. And that in turn, deeply affected me. And I thought, well, I wonder what the Constitution has to say about that, meaning what kinds of Supreme Court cases have there been in relationship to domestic violence? And what I found was really upsetting, all of them actually, but the the one that struck me the most because it was so much like my grandma's situation is there is a woman, Jessica Lenahan. Her name at the time was Je- Jessica Gonzalez. She was married to an abusive man, much like my grandma was. And um, she was divorcing him. They had three daughters together. She got a permanent restraining order against him because he had been violent and threatening violence and threatening suicide. And he came to basically pick up her daughters when she wasn't there and disappeared with them. And so she called the police to enforce her restraining order. And the police kept saying, well, he's her father. I'm sure it's fine. She knew it wasn't fine. She kept calling back many, many times. She called back all throughout the day, throughout the night. She went to the police station at one point. They, the, the account is rather harrowing because they basically mocked her, refused to go look for her husband. And in this time period, this 24-hour time period, he killed their daughters and himself. 
Yeah. So she sued the police department of Castle Rock. This is in Colorado. She won saying that they had not adequately, you know, enforced the the restraining order, that they had not done their duty to protect her. But then the the police department appealed. It ended up going to the Supreme Court in 2005. And the Supreme Court ruled in a seven to two decision, actually, which is still shocking to me, that she was not, in fact, entitled to police protection, that she couldn't sue the police yeah. department. And, and, and was that on the basis of no one is entitled to police protection? Or what exactly? I mean, that's the precedent that was set. I mean, it gets very complicated. And, and one of the things I found most upsetting when I listened to the case is that it all hinged on the word shall. Yes. So it, there's a law that Colorado had just actually passed to help escalate uh, domestic violence laws. Like they had said that the police shall respond to a restraining order. At one point, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer got in this little argument about whether either of them even understood what the word shall meant. Uh, Terry, can you... Wait, wait. I, I thought we were just talking here about state law as to whether shall means shall. Do you think that it's a matter of state law, whether whether if it does mean shall, it creates a property interest for purposes of the federal uh, constitution? No, Justice Scalia, I don't. Suppose shall does mean shall. Fine. But you might have a statute that says the fire department shall respond to fires. The police department shall respond to crimes. The army shall respond to uh, 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 attacks. Even the word shall doesn't necessarily mean. Scalia ultimately decided that shall did not mean must, which, uh, which I actually find very confusing because Scalia was a devout Catholic. <laughs> the thing they came to was like, what does it mean to say the police department didn't do their duty, you know, like that, that creates such a slippery slope, I think was their argument that like people could be suing them sort of left and right. And then that would be problematic. I mean, that was, that was Scalia's approach. He, he called himself an originalist, a textualist, and that was his approach to the constitution was that basically what she was arguing for was a positive right to police protection. And, and his view of the constitution is that it's, it's, a negative rights document. It's been only very recently that it was even considered a crime to beat your wife, you know? So it's just like a long history of things that that sort of lead to the idea that there needs to be positive protection of people in these situations. And I feel like that's, that's one of the things the play sort of gets to is that like, yeah, get, if everything were fair, <laughs> if, if people were actually treated equally and we were on some kind of level playing field, then it would be fine, I think, to have a negative rights document, right? It would be fine. To, but because things aren't fair, I, I think there have to be some positive rights. There have to be rights that that attempt to come in and rectify, that attempt to create racial justice or create gender justice, like, because there's just no such thing as neutral. And therefore, if, if we go by this negative rights philosophy, like nothing will ever change in terms of, of creating true equality and, or justice in right. this country. Right. So tell me about the young women who join you at the end of the play. At the end of the play, I debate a teenage debater, a teenage girl. And on Broadway and in the film, we had two incredible New York City debaters, Rosdeli Ciprian and Thursday Williams. At the time, 
Rosadelli was 15, Thursday was 18. They're a little older now. And they're just some of the smartest, most amazing yeah. young women I've ever met and brought with them very, very different and specific debate skills. <laughs> our document was designed to make the changes that you want to make. So why are you willing to put our entire democracy at risk instead of just passing an amendment? Well, we haven't passed an amendment in my lifetime. We've been trying to pass the Equal Rights Amendment for the past hundred years. What makes you think we're going to pass it now? Okay. One state away from ratification, so you want to give up now? Well, it's not giving up if we're being set up to fail. Fine, let me ask you this. Let's say we give you this new constitution. Okay. What is to stop private lobbying organizations, corporations, like, say, the NRA, from influencing the making of this new document with their money? Well, this is why we need a new constitution to stop these big lobbying corporations from using their money to tilt the boat that is our laws. Okay, but... How? How are you going to make that happen? By making a new constitution. Time! <laughs> do, do, I mean, what was, what was the thought process? Why did you bring them on? Because it is really just like plopped in the middle of, it's, it's fabulous, but it's so unexpected. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it's so unexpected. Yeah, I, actually, I knew long ago, maybe a decade ago, that I wanted... Well, first I wanted a real teenager in the play. And then when I decided that I was going to be the teenager, I thought it would be really a wonderful sort of magic trick to have an actual 15-year-old appear at the end of the play. But I had no idea what I wanted her to do, what what that even was. I told Oliver Butler, my incredible director, that I was like, you know, I really want a teenager to show up at the end of this play, but I have no idea what they should do. And we <laughs> went back and forth. I was like, she should be a debater, obviously, <clears throat> since I'm a debater in the in the show. So we actually hired Rose Deli before we knew what she was going to do. Yeah. She was 12 at the time. We we oh. saw so many 15-year-olds, and they were all incredible, but Rose Deli came in and just gave this brilliant speech uh, and I was like, she's the person, clearly. She's so smart and funny. And so she and I, we just had this workshop. And at first I thought she was going to give her own speech, much like I give mine. And then we did a thing where we drew amendments from the hat, like I do in the play. And we would give little extemporaneous speeches on our feet. So it was going to be that. And then at some point, and honestly, I don't remember, but I want to give Oliver credit because it was definitely through our discussions. We were like, well... But the play begins with this kind of worship of the Constitution, and then I go on this whole journey to really break that all down and, and look at what's actually there and how it's actually affected my life. Maybe it should end with, with the ultimate question, which is, is this document even serving us anymore? And that seemed like a great thing to debate with a young person, mostly because I felt like, well, I want to have that conversation with young people now. Also, in terms of the kind of poetic shape of the play, it's like my 40-year-old self arguing with my 15-year-old self. Right. <laughs> and it just, that felt but really right. But there's also something, yeah. there's something magic about a girl. I don't know why. But there's something about a girl that makes you feel hope, um, especially a girl like a Rose Deli or Thursday. They were, they were amazing. But, you know, you use Rose Bader Ginsburg's voice at some point. Of course, the problem with making an all-new positive rights constitution. With human rights enshrined from the beginning. Is, uh, we would still have to trust the people interpreting that document, right? We still have to trust the people who are in charge. 
And the excuse for not hiring women in the criminal division was they have to deal with all these tough types. And women aren't up to that. And I was amazed. I said, have you seen the lawyers at Legal Aid who are representing these tough types? They are women. People ask me sometimes, when, when do you think it will be enough? When will, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. <laughs> and, I mean, she, she came and sat in the audience one night, right? She did, yeah. Was she that did. pressure? Did that feel like a lot of pressure? Oh, it was such tremendous pressure. <laughs> I I found out only uh, I found out about an hour before I went on stage that she was there, and I quickly went back and fact checked everything in my script. You know, there right. there are points in the script that I'm always fact checking. 10 or 20 times and I like rechecked those spots to make sure I knew what I was talking about. I mean, it was thrilling and and such an incredible honor. And, you know, I had spent hours and hours listening to her voice and never imagining that I would get to perform for her. But it was a little scary. Do you think even even though she got replaced with someone so brutally the opposite of her, do you think some of her legacy will still affect the court? Oh, yes. I mean, her legacy... Obviously, her legacy is a justice, but her legacy as a, a lawyer who argued cases in front of the Supreme Court has created so much precedent in terms of, I mean, the, the cases she took that helped further equality on the basis of sex are, are landmark cases. And even though we have this very conservative court, like, those are precedents she helped create yeah. that are not likely to be rolled back. I mean, there's lots of things that are likely to be rolled back, but so much of the work she did has created this kind of uh, framework that I think would be hard to undo. Unfortunately, we just need so much more. <laughs> yes. And we're and we're looking at a period of getting so much less, which yes. is a real fear. Yes. You know, one of the more funny moments I, I mentioned it before is when you say that you were psychotically polite. But I also know you wanted us thinking of that later when you're in the car with the guy in college. And and I, I was sexually assaulted at 15 because I was too polite. I think you do such a good job of covering that sort of foggy, was it consent, wasn't it consent right. thing that certainly I didn't understand it as sexual assault till I was much, much older. I totally get that. I mean, do you think that psychotic politeness is like one of these manifestations of inherited trauma, centuries of it, and fear? I, I mean, I do think so. First of all, I'm, I'm sorry. And I, yeah, I just want to say that. I do feel like that. I, uh, I think going back, sort of investigating that moment and kind of investigating what was going on in my body while it was happening. I, I certainly felt like there's a kind of fear I'm experiencing that I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> it feels very preverbal. It feels like something that's hard. Yeah, I guess if I could understand it and name it, I probably would have acted differently. Or so, yeah, centuries of also just cultural conditioning. You know, I guess I've been thinking a lot too about the idea of being psychotically polite, especially as a white woman, I've been thinking about its more insidious forms of not 
standing up for the vulnerable because I think it also, you know, that's the flip side of it, right? Is that you're too afraid to assert yourself in a situation, but you're also like too afraid to defend people of other races or to call out racism when you see it or to not go along with a situation that is harmful. And I do feel like that's one way that white women in particular uphold white supremacy is, is by being. Oh, for sure. And I feel like it, that's just, it's still, for me, that kind of politeness is so inbred, like all of it, not to, to question anybody or call anybody out or make anyone uncomfortable. It's something I have to work on every single day. Yeah. Yeah. As I get older, I have less of this problem. Yes. So it does, it does with age, it comes, but I mean, the point is that they want to wire that into us when we're young and sexually viable and, you know, likely to carry children. And that's when we're at our most valuable to them. And that's when they want us not to be in control of ourselves. And I don't know how we change that for 15-year-olds because I don't see it all that different yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, though, I think you just said, like, they, that's when they want us to be, you yeah, know? And yeah. I, I think one of the one of the reasons it's so hard to change is I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there are some, there are predators and there are awful people and there are manipulators and people who are using this kind of stuff consciously. But the truth is, like, m- most of it is unconscious, right? And it, like, I, I don't know that there's um some person out there or group out there, like, doing it to us, right? It's like, it's an inherited cultural dynamic. And most of it we do to ourselves and to each other, right? We we do it to to ourselves. We do to each other. Yes, it it can happen in situation with with fathers and mothers and whatever. But I do think why it's so hard to, to shake or move through is that it's like, it's just so deeply baked into everything. It's so deep. It's so deep. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No question. So, so you also talk about how you say one thing at 15 about abortion on one of those debate stages, and then six years later you get pregnant. And yes, it was complicated. I totally relate to that because I was very indoctrinated in a Catholic house and then had an abortion years later and, and had to think it through all by myself. I mean, how did you manage the thinking process about it? Was it a challenge and was it hard in the play to be that vulnerable? It was, first of all, I, you know, I grew up, I didn't grow up pro-life. My mom, my dad is very conservative, conservative Republican. My mom is a liberal feminist Democrat. Mm -hmm. So, which is a whole, you know, I, I love them both. I don't quite understand how that works. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure it out too. I could do it. Uh, But my, so I grew up pro-choice. My mom kind of taught me about like, I I kind of grew up with the idea and I'm sure I got this from my mom, which is like, it's every person's right to decide, you know, what to do with their own body when it comes to, to reproduction. But, but that an abortion was something that personally, like it was still like a bad thing. Being the good girl I wanted to be would never do it. And so I think the thing that I had to come to terms with was when I decided to make that choice, like what it, meant <laughs> about who I was and and my sort of own self-conception and that that was like a real struggle for me. I did have like a lot of guilt about it and, and a lot of shame. By the time I performed the play, I had definitely worked through the guilt and and didn't think I felt shame except for, and I talk about this in the play a little bit, 
that was not the hard part of the show for me. Talking about the my family history of abuse was the scariest part. But when I would t- talk about my abortion and then meet people after the play, I I realized that I hadn't really told anybody. I realized I had lots of close friends that I'd never told I had an abortion and I wasn't sure why. And then I sort of realized that because some of them came and told me that they had had abortions. And I wondered what it was that kept us from talking to each other all those years. We're all, you know, this is for the most part, like people, you know, women living in New York City who are artists, who are very liberal and very actually forthcoming, who hadn't talked about it with each other. And I thought that um, that really pointed to a, a kind of lingering sense of Shame. shame. Yeah, I think we've internalized the shame. Yes. And, and you know, I, I mean, I think that like on the pro-choice side, there's a lot of talk about eliminating stigma. But I also think that it's not nothing, you know. There, of course. Not, it's not true that nothing is happening that day. It's, it's not just like having a mole removed. And, and we have right. to admit that. I agree with you. I mean, that it, certainly for me, it was, you know, it was a, a big a hard decision and something did happen. You know, I, 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 it was a painful decision. I don't regret it, but it was painful. And I think this is, this happens in politics a lot when things get simplified because you're afraid to ruin the message or something that every person who's had an abortion has a, a specific personal relationship to it. You know, I imagine there are some people for whom it's nothing. And there are probably the majority of people whom it's a painful decision. And then of course, there's really the heartbreaking aspect of it for people who, who desperately want children. Having just given birth myself, I just, I feel, and I gave birth to twins in a very high risk pregnancy. And so this is very much on my mind lately, just people who want the child and, and have for extreme health reasons to have an abortion later in their pregnancy is is one of the most traumatic and excruciating things a person can go through. And the fact that that has gotten politicized by the pro-life movement is so upsetting and disturbing. Yeah. But I, but I do want to talk about men for a minute. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you love them. I love them. We love them. But on January the 6th, it was Manpalooza up there in the Capitol. And there were women there. But once they do all the counting or whatever, it'll come to about 15%. And you know that the military is 15% women hmm. and police departments are 15% women. It's an interesting number. I didn't know that uh, statistic, yeah. huh? Yeah. And so, and and this is after the police departments and the military, everybody's been trying to get more women. And that just kind of usually plateaus at about somewhere between 15 and 20. Wow. So that's an interesting thing. But what was happening in terms of masculinity on the 6th that, that, I mean, it certainly was driven by race. But I keep thinking we're not noticing the masculinity piece the way we should. I mean, did you feel that when you were watching on Wednesday? Um, That's a Great question, because I feel, first of all, I get a little hesitant talking about masculinity, because I also feel like it's, uh, first of all, I feel so glad that we're in this moment, and and it seems to be a moment that will continue, where where the definition of gender is a fluid one, and, and so ultimately, like, a, a concept like masculinity doesn't necessarily have to be 
affixed to a cis male, you know, like, yeah. I, I feel like we're in this moment when we're like questioning well, all of these terms. That, but, that, but, but that's yeah. true for you and me. Right. But, but I, I don't think the guys in the Capitol were subscribing to a fluid idea of gender. <laughs> right. No, no, in absolutely fact, it's not. Again, no, no, no. That was I, one of the yes. things they were rebelling against. Yes. I don't know, honestly. I, I feel confused about all of it. I, I, I will say, I guess if I had to describe the thing I saw, it was... Yes, it seemed to be primarily men. It seemed to be, although I'm sure there were exceptions, primarily cis men. I'm going to guess a lot of them were straight. And it seemed to me they, again, with exceptions, were men who felt their identity as the men in power threatened. And I, I do think that comes down to, to an identity as a, as a white man. I do think that they're feeling in a pincer and they and they and they don't know where to go except to explode outwards. Yes. You know. Let me ask you one last question. So so the the right wing in a in the most hideous manner trampled all over RBG's legacy and they now have a 6 to 3 uh, majority, but it's not just any 6 to 3 majority, it's an extreme. Yes, it is. 6 to 3 majority. So what do you think the effect is going to be on the on the credibility of the court, which until recently was fairly widely respected? That's a great question. Let me say one thing. I, first of all, I think it's okay for the court to lose a bit of credibility because I feel like maybe we've given it too much credibility for a long time. Maybe we've given it too much respect. And there there is a way in which like it forces us to like to do the work ourselves in a way, you know what I mean? I, I have so many activist friends who are like working hard on a local level, on a state level to get laws passed that protect bodily autonomy, that protect women, that protect black people, that protect trans lives. So I, I feel like uh, in one sense, in, in one sense, it like forces us into action. And then I will also say, Look, this is a very Pollyanna view of it, I realize. I, I wish we had mm. a, a court I could respect. I, I want that. Yeah. But I also think that that this whole idea of having a, a court of nine unelected people make these very life and death decisions about people's lives, I, I don't think yeah. is a great idea in the first place, personally. I'm for court packing, I, I, or let me say, I'm for expanding the court. I'm for... <laughs> um, I, I'm for attempting to change that structure if possible. And yeah. then secondly, I'll say like, I, and I'm not a historian, but like from the, just kind of reading about this court and doing a little deep dive and reading Jill Lepore's book on the history mm -hmm. of our country, I just realized like the, there have been plenty of times that the court was not respected <laughs> and nor yeah. should it have been, you know, and yeah. there's just been like atrocious decisions. Yes. You know, yeah. Dred Scott versus Plessy Sanford, first. you yeah, know, there's exactly. like, so I think it's, it's fine. Let's, let's not respect the court and let's figure out how to create something yeah. that we can respect. Well, that's the best answer I could imagine. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Again, let me just say, I wish she, you know, I, I wish, I, I wish this president had not been the person to appoint so many justices. It's, it's, um, it's, it's scary and heartbreaking. Yeah. You've been so nice to give us so much time. And I, I just, I can't wait to see, you know, what you got planned next. 
Thank you. Which is a horrible thing to say to somebody who just came off of you. No, no, no. I have some ideas brewing. It's actually a good thing good. to say. <laughs> good, like good, good, months, good, good. Maybe at one month, no, but at eight months, it's great. <laughs> Enjoy those babies at eight months. Thank you. So the film adaptation of Heidi Schreck's award-winning play, What the Constitution Means to Me, is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. You can also follow her on Twitter at Heidi B. Schreck and keep an eye out for her when the theater returns. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pancrazi and Christine Schomer. Lauren Wimbush is our associate producer. Sabrina Yates is our production coordinator. Our engineer is Veronica Rodriguez. Bob Golden composed our theme music. Audio from What the Constitution Means to Me, provided by Amazon Content Services, LLC. The podcast team also includes VP of Production, Aideen Kane. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.